All right, good morning, everyone. How are y'all doing? I think you said y'all, too, a couple times, Kyle. I was really happy. I lived in Nashville for all three months, so now I'm qualified to say y'all. <laughs> it was back in the day. I guess you get it from L.A., too. It's awesome. Well, you guys, um, we have some amazing scripture to look at this morning. Really, really, not only excited, um, but humbled because of the content, and just to Catch up to speed if you're visiting with us this morning. You haven't been here before. We just started a new series. Uh, Pastor Brian started last week of Jesus' final words from the cross. Um, I'm continuing the um, theme, but today we're going to be looking at salvation. Salvation. Is there a more important topic to cover? I think not. Salvation. Uh, We all need it. It comes from one source. We're going to look at that this morning. So I'm excited. Will you pray with me as we open up the word together? Father God, we are humbled, I'm humbled specifically, Lord, to go over this passage that you've given us as a gift, that we could be sure of our calling, sure of our salvation, that we could know without a shadow of a doubt that you are God, Jesus, that you died in our place, that you rose from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures. And Lord, we're humbled and we're also expectant, Lord, for you to just illuminate this passage into our hearts afresh. If it's familiar, if we've read it before a million times, may you bring something fresh out of it. Penetrate our hearts with it. If we're looking at it for the first time, perhaps use it to call your people to yourself. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this church, this building even to sit in to enjoy the time together. May you be with our kids this morning. May they be blessed in their classes as they learn about you as well. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen, amen. Okay, well, we have, uh, if you want to turn with me to Luke, if you don't have a Bible, we have ushers that have Bibles available for anyone who needs one, and if you don't have one yourself, feel free to keep them. And I'm reading out of the ESV this morning, Luke chapter 23, and it starts in uh, verse 32. Today's message is, today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus' words from the cross. The seven-part series we're in is, starting out last week, we did a message on forgiveness from Luke. Today we'll be on salvation. Next, you can read there in the slide, affection, then anguish of Christ, then longing and suffering, victory, and finally belonging. All of those themes that we're covering in the series, I'm going to cover in part or in depth today, but really finding our grounding, our, our feet firm in salvation specifically. So it gives you an idea where we're headed and what we're going to cover this morning. Uh, looking from last week, Pastor Brian's message, if you missed it, of how people responded to the tragedy. What tragedy are we talking about? Obviously, we're talking about the passion of the Messiah, the passion of Christ, the passion, another way of saying the suffering of Christ. What did we see in the scriptures, the documents, the historical documents that give us the content of what and how people responded, it differed, didn't it? First way, some people were shocked, they were stunned. Obviously, the scene itself, if we put ourselves back a couple thousand years into the scene, it would have been shocking for everyone, even those familiar with crucifixion, as much as the Romans would perfect the actual torturous death to the worst of people 
that they at least wanted to serve as a warning to other people. It was meant to be shocking. It was meant to stun people that would come across it. Next, you had other people that saw Christ even in this moment of suffering with contempt and ridicule. Others played games. We know the soldiers played games. They cast lots to see who would win, as heinous as it sounds, to win the garments of someone who was stripped naked. They played games to see who would end up with the garments of Christ. And today we're looking at a couple of different themes of how people responded. And one is blaspheming. What does blaspheming mean? Do you go around thinking, well, at the end of your day, did I blaspheme today? It's not something we really kind of look internally about. But it's definitely a theme for all of us in one way or another. We're all, in a sense, blasphemers. And why do I say that? I say that because blaspheming is just basically taking God and his holiness and who he is and reducing it to a lower state, to not giving him the due or honor that's due his name, to not proclaim truth, but to, to, but to say lies. In fact, those who were in Israel, especially the leaders of the Jewish faith at the time, Sadducees, Pharisees, if you will, they accused Christ himself of what? Being a blasphemer. Why? Because Jesus had the audacity in their eyes to say, I am the Father. Father is in me. I and the Father are one. That would be instantly saying, you're dishonoring God by spreading lies. There's no way you are God. You could be the son of God. You could be a messenger of God. You could be a prophet of God. But when you say you can do things like forgive sin, you're blaspheming. You're spreading lies about God. And in this case, we see criminals on either side of him being crucified. And they're speaking blasphemies. But they're not the only ones. They're not the only ones. And then finally, you see people repenting. Taking the scene in, we have different vignettes being proclaimed in the scriptures of people that saw Jesus suffer. Get this. The way he died led people to repent. I mean, that's pretty heavy when you think about it. The way I die one day, can people come to Christ through that death? Because there's such hope, because there's such peace in the Savior, the the suffering servant, how he didn't utter hatred towards those who are killing him, torturing him, and yet uttering things like we saw last week, Father, forgive them. There was something about that that led people to say, I'm yours. I'm yours. You are God. You are suffering an unjust death. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So starting in Luke 23, verse 32. Let's read together this passage that we're looking at today. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, saying, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? 
Save yourself and us. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's the passage we're looking at. Pretty heavy stuff. I wanted to read a little excerpt that I got out of um, doing some study on the topic of just crucifixion. And, and as we're, we're talking about the, the cross, as we're talking about crucifixion, it's important, and, and Brian did a little bit of this last week, of looking at really what it was involving. Because when you see what, or you hear, or you're reminded of what Christ was experiencing, what these people were experiencing on either side of him, and what people uh, that were at the hands of the Romans in such a way experienced, it, it definitely puts it on a whole other level of appreciation, doesn't it, for what our Savior did in our place. And as we look at this season of Lent, as we look at this season of preparing ourselves for uh, Good Friday coming up soon and Easter as well, there's just something heavy when you get reminded about these kind of things. I just wanted to read something uh, put together by one of my favorite uh, teachers, um, Pastor David Guzik, and he compiled a great commentary on the scriptures itself. And I just want to read this little excerpt that he got from Edwards and Clark, and he kind of compiled this about the crucifixion. So bear with me. It says there, he quotes the scripture, there they crucified him. It says, in days the New Testament was first written, the practice of crucifixion needed no explanation. In many generations since then, most people do not appreciate what a person experienced in the ordeal of execution by crucifixion. Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. The combination of scourging and crucifixion made death on the cross especially brutal. The victim's back was first torn open by the scourging. Then the clotting blood was ripped open again when the clothes were torn off before crucifixion. The victim was thrown on the ground to fix his hands to the crossbeam, and the wounds on the back were again torn open and contaminated with dirt. Then, as the victim hung on the cross, each breath caused the painful wounds on the back to scrape against the rough wood of the upright beam. When the nail was driven through the wrists, it severed the large median nerve. This stimulated nerve produced excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and often gave the victim a claw-like grip in his hands. Beyond the extreme pain, the major effect of crucifixion was to restrict normal breathing, The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to fix the respiratory muscles in the inhalation state and hinder exhalation. The lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps, which further hindered breathing. And to get a good breath, the victim had to push against the feet and the flex of the elbows pulling from the shoulders. Putting the weight of the body on the feet produced searing pain and flexing the elbows twisted the hands hanging on the nails. 
Lifting the body for a breath also painfully scraped the back against the rough wooden post, and each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner death. Not uncommonly, insects would light upon or burrow into the open wounds or the eyes, ears, and nose of the dying and helpless victim, and birds of prey would tear at these sites. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. Death from crucifixion could come from many sources. Acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, or congenitive heart failure leading to a cardiac rupture. If the victim did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken and the victim was soon unable to breathe because of the posture of the crucified person. How bad was crucifixion? We get our English word excruciating from the Roman word out of the cross. Consider how heinous sin must be in the sight of God when it requires such a sacrifice. So, obviously, we're talking about brutal things. These are things that are heavy. They, they shock you. They cause you to think deeply about what God must have in his heart for sinful people to subject himself to this kind of suffering. Here's the difference between God choosing this and us experience suffering. Many of us can relate to suffering. But can you imagine if you knew the suffering ahead of you or what maybe even you're currently going through, would you choose to do it? Would you choose to go through it? I think the only way I can even, my mind can contemplate such a thing is to think about God having love dominate his intentionality, right? If, if, in other words, if there wasn't an object of love before him, would he even consider such a plan as this, to have his own son suffer such a brutal death? There's got to be such motivation in the Father's heart to love us that would allow him to work in, in conjunction with the Son. Isn't that heavy? Without it, without intentionality, without someone to have purpose in which to suffer, No one would choose it, but even still to plan it. See, the Romans perfected it. It it came from another source, perfected it. Can you imagine perfecting such a horrible thing? But there was purpose in that, and it was complete evil. But it was also a power play, wasn't it? If you see somebody down the road, and they were planted among commonly, you know, trotted paths, not high, not super high, but right at above eye level. So you could just literally, you'd have to walk past the suffering victims on crucifixion because the intentionality was such that they wanted to shock you into obedience. God wanted to shock us into obedience, but not out of fear. What a difference between the world and God who loves us. He wanted us to be shocked, didn't he? At how much sin causes pain. How much sin causes there to be a suffering servant? I want to highlight a couple observations from this whole scene. First of all, the location. And you'll see up here. The place of crucifixion took place at Calvary. It's the word for skull. Other translations say Golgotha. They all mean the same thing, place of the skull. Uh, If you've been to Israel, they take you to two different places. And they say these two places are most likely to be the place of crucifixion. But both we know 
had to be outside the city walls of the old Jerusalem. At Jesus' time, it would have been done outside the city. But it was a place that looked like a skull. There's one in particular, the garden tomb is located by. You literally can still see what looks like a skull on the mountainside. It, it, by scholars would say, that's the less likely place of the crucifixion. The other one um, is, is more probable, but it, you can see, and especially when they pull out a, a photo from 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that show this skull, and it's, it's unbelievable, but it, was, it symbolized what it really was, was a place of crucifixion, which meant you just thought about that's where people die horrible deaths, the most horrible deaths. So, the, so that's the backdrop of the scene. Now, who is there? Whenever you read your Bibles, ask these questions. Who, what, where, why? You know, those kind of things. Who? Guilty criminals. Was there any doubt that these guys were guilty? They themselves are saying in the, in the scripture, right? He's like, we deserve this. We're guilty. So even they themselves knew that they were guilty and deserving of death. But you have the guiltless Jesus in between them. Think about this. God is so in the details. Jesus' very location of crucifixion took place where? In the middle of two guilty people. Why is that significant? Simply believe that this is him, the Savior guiltless, identifying with the guilty. He's not saying that's them, like he was a little bit separate from them. He's right in the middle of two sinners, suffering the guilt that they deserve. He guiltless is right in the middle, identifying with the guilty. It's powerful. What is communicated? What is communicated? Ridicule. We know from the scriptures in other passages, for example, that uh, they both were ridiculing him. In Luke, it just talks about one saying, hey, hold on here. But in other uh, gospels, it does say they both participated in ridiculing him. So the, the one criminal that does seem to come around and repent was actually part of the, the chorus ridiculing Jesus at the start. So this whole transformation of the heart took place somewhere in this whole thing of crucifixion going on. Again, Jesus' suffering led people to this place. And then truth and repentance and prayer on the part of the one criminal. Isn't it a beautiful thing to see this in the scripture? You guys, why is it so encouraging to see Jesus tell this, this person, this criminal, today, I tell you the truth, you'll be with me in paradise. Why is that so powerful when, when you go through this journey in this life as a, as a son or daughter, a follower of Christ? Why is that so powerful? He's literally incapable of doing anything but just asking for mercy. He's not in a position to say, hey, I'm going to do this for you. Jesus will do that. I'll do this. I promise to be a good person. He literally knows he's dying. He can't move. When he does, he's in excruciating pain. He's looking at the servant next to him saying, there's something about this person. Actually, he isn't a person, just a person. He's actually God. I know that to be true. And he can't do a thing for the Savior. You guys, just as, a, as, a, as something that's encouraged me over the years is to remember the thief on the, Christ, in the cross that repented because it allows me to fail at times and not beat myself up too much. To not struggle as much with the fact of, God, you still love me because I know I know better than this. Have you felt like that? God, did you choose the right person as an object of your love? Because you really know the depths of my heart and my thoughts that go through my head. 
And it's like, oh, yeah, the thief on the cross. Couldn't do a thing for you. And yet he came to repentance. I want to look at, I want to break that down. And and we'll do it quickly, but I want you to look at this with me. For one, the criminal says truth. In verse 40, you can look down your Bibles. Verse 40, he equates Jesus with God. In verse 41, he proclaims that Jesus is innocent. In verse uh, following, he says, he actually just even using the name Jesus, even in saying Jesus, he's saying Jehovah is salvation. That's what Jesus means. So in other words, Jehovah's salvation is you. you. You are providing salvation for me. He's using his name. But he also goes on to say Jesus is a king. Now, what, king, what person wants to follow a king that's dying a death like this? You don't follow a defeated king. You follow, what, a victor, victorious king. But he, somewhere in that, was able to say and, and get, get the, the truth of Jesus that he actually is the king of kings. And this is part of God's plan to save. I think this thief and possibly the other one were raised Jewish because of what he says here. Remember me, you know, when, when you, a king, go into your kingdom, come in your kingdom. He knew something about God's plan. In other words, in my mind, I think the guy was Jewish. He went wayward. He's probably even more so, so cognizant of every law that he's broken according to not just the Romans, but more importantly, God's law. You know what I mean? He's been choosing all along, and he, he's fully aware. And he knows that there's a king coming. That's, that's just something that I, I think in reading this over and over again, that he acknowledges that there's a king coming who's going to save. And just as we were talking about Jews for Jesus coming and talking about that Sunday morning, he's going to be, don't miss it, he's talking about the seven feasts. And he's focusing in the evening on Passover. And all through them is Jesus, 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 Jesus. And I wonder if there's something clicking in this, in this person's heart and mind. Oh, oh. Oh, I missed it. There's suffering involved in Isaiah. Oh, those chapters, the 50s. How did I miss that my whole life? Can you imagine all these conclusions? The guy's suffering to death, and, let, and yet you could see there's just light bulbs going on at bed in his mind and his heart. It's opening up. And he's saying, you're a king, and I know this isn't the end of the, of the story. You're going to go into your kingdom. Will you just remember me? You don't say that to a dying, defeated king unless you know that king is truly victorious, Right? But if you know that he's victorious and this isn't the end of the story, just remember me. That'd be enough. Just remember me. The, the word remember me is the same word in the first chapters of Luke being used. This is really significant as well. In, you remember Mary uh, singing a great song when she heard about the plans of God, that she was going to be the mother of the Savior of the world? She does this whole celebration, and she references the same word in the Greek. It says remember in reference to God remembering his people. According to his covenant, he's using the same word. In other words, it's an ongoing remember. It's a remember that's broad. It's a remember that applies to the whole nation of Israel. And he's saying, I'm, I could be a part of it. I mean, I, I was born into it. I've totally blown it. I haven't done anything worthy. If anything, I've just deserved death as a sinner. Will you just remember me as you've remembered your people Israel who are also wayward? If we look at our history, be honest about it. We're not a people with a good track record. We've turned our backs. I'm one of those people. I've lived my life in total rebellion, and yet I know there's hope. Please remember me. Please remember me as part of the covenant of a, of a people that you've chosen to love. You guys, remember your own souls when you struggle. Remember me, Lord, 
I'm part of your people. If you've come to faith in Christ, he loves you. And that's unconditional, just like this thief. But he's saying these things in great truth. The last two real quick, repentance. We're receiving what is due, he's saying to the, others, uh, the other criminal. Sinners deserve judgment, and therefore I am a sinner, and I deserve this. I want to repent. I want to turn away from my sin, even though I have no future here on earth. I want to give my heart to you. You can see it oozing out of him. And then finally, he just gives a simple prayer. Remember me. You know, God doesn't want the uh, most educated, most obedient, most learned of the scriptures, most prophetically, you know, knowledgeable. He just wants faith. He just wants repentance. He just wants simple, I'm a sinner. Please save me, even though I don't deserve it. Isn't that beautiful? The most simple, the most, just the person that humbles themselves is the one he raises up, even at their worst hour. Jesus, and this is the focus of this morning, and I'll end with this. I just want to look at his reply. And let it fill our hearts. And if you have never personally come to a place, I just want to plead with you. Plead with you. If you've never come to a place where you simply said, Father, I'm a sinner. I'm deserving punishment, of punishment, of wrath. I've disobeyed you. Possibly your whole life you've run from God. And disobeyed him. And you've known in your heart that you have. Maybe today you can just, with your heart, say, Lord, remember me. Remember me. I'm a sinner. Remember me. Please forgive me and let me be with you. However that looks. Whatever it looks like. Jesus replies and will reply to you the same, I believe, as evidence in the scripture this way. Breaking it down, he just says, truly. In other words, believe it. Take it to the bank. This is truth. Truly, I say to you, Jesus makes it personal, doesn't he? Now, I'm not saying it to these people right now. I'm saying it to you. I say to you. How beautiful is that to be acknowledged individually by Christ? A part of a group that you love, you have covenant with, but I'm also an individual who you see everything about and yet still put your affection upon. Say, I say to you, today, After death, immediate. It's not going to be somewhere you're going to go in soul sleep. We're going to be in paradise today, together. Because he says, with me. And you know what this tells me, you guys? It reminds me that Jesus wants a personal relationship with us. You're going to be not just in a great place. Like, hopefully you'll get to nirvana someday. He's like, no. The main thing, here's the best gift I can give you. You're going to be with me. The Savior of the world beautiful. And lastly, it's going to be a great place. In fact, we could just go ahead and say it's paradise. That's the hope we have. It's not we just hope one day when we die we'll get to a good place. It's like eternal life starts now when you say, remember me. And it actually, the destination is paradise in all ways. No more suffering, no more tears, no more crucifixion, no more ugly death. We're all praying, I'm sure, for Ukraine. And what's ugliest about that there will be an end to that you guys there will be an end to that and every sin will be taken care of by our savior that's the most encouraging thing i could say this morning that jesus could say the same to you and to me it's a beautiful beautiful thing amen so we're going to celebrate that with communion now we're going to have the worship team come back up 
If you guys all want to stand with me. What we're going to do is we're going to have ushers up here with the elements. If you need uh, gluten-free, some people, you, you do need that. There's a basket up here that will remain, not with them holding it, but the one that remains is gluten-free. But uh, we're just going to individually just come down these uh, middle aisles to receive it and then go out the, the side just to make it easier for everybody, if you will. Go ahead and, and get the elements, and then we'll partake together after I pray and, as we worship. So as you guys need to pray and prepare your hearts, the Bible says definitely prepare your hearts, especially in light of our message today, that salvation is here. And I just want to say, if that's you, if you've never, ever, and you know in the heart of hearts if this is so, if you have, refresh, be refreshed that he loves you. More today... Or the same today as he did ever, the moment of salvation. If you haven't, though, this is a time between you and the Lord. There's no magic formula. It's just simply remember me. That could be your prayer today. And if that is you, I would encourage you to pray in this time of worship. When we sing the song, simply pray that to God, knowing that you are a sinner and being honest with him. Repentance just simply means agreeing with what's already been said by God. That's all repentance is. You're just saying, yes, that's true. I am a sinner. I've done wrong. But if that's you, I'd encourage you to stick around and pray with somebody. We have a couple of people over here to pray with. And just let them know that that's your heart today so that they can pray for you. Make sure you're set up well to, uh, to get involved here at the church. Or... So anyways, let's, let's give a word of prayer to the Lord. Thanks. Father God, we just thank you that you're with us, that you love us, that you're patient with us, that you're good to us, that you forgive us, that you're merciful. And we just say, remember us, Lord. Remember me. Thank you that you respond as you have to that thief on the cross. Help us worship you now as we uh, celebrate our shared salvation.